Hello and welcome to the Qubit Guy podcast, brought to you by Classic, the quantum algorithm design company. My name is Yuval, and my guest today is Trevor Lanting, Director of Science at D-Wave Systems. Trevor and I discuss what quantum annealing can and cannot do, how the quantum annealer is maintained, what customers worry about when they deploy quantum solutions, and much more. We hope you enjoy this episode. Please let us know how we did by emailing hello at classic.io. That's hello at classic.io. Hello, Trevor, and thanks for joining me today. Hello, Yuval. Nice to meet you. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Trevor Lanting. I'm an experimental physicist at D-Wave Systems. I work on our processor development team. So I've been at D-Wave for just over 10 years, um, and I've been involved with uh, a lot of the aspects of the development of our quantum annealing uh, processor technology. And now, more recently, as we build up a, a, a gate model effort, um, I'm involved with that as well. So would you give me a really quick intro on what quantum annealing is? Yeah, so the quantum annealing, in some ways, you can think of as the quantum analog to to uh, parallel tempering or to uh, to, to basically uh, simulated annealing, which is a heuristic that you can run on a classical computer to solve optimization problems. So quantum annealing is the quantum analog to that, um, where instead of uh, as with simulated annealing, you turn up and down the temperature um, and explore your your solution space by like slowly decreasing your temperature. With quantum annealing, you're turning on quantum mechanical fluctuations. And so you're exploring a large solution space for solving an optimization uh, problem uh, via quantum fluctuations. Um, so you can actually put yourself in a superposition over all possible solutions to the answer and then slowly turn down tunneling until you localize into what you're hoping is, is, uh, is the ground state or a low energy state of, of, uh, of an overall system that encodes the answer to a problem that you're trying to solve. So. If I go to the D-Wave website, I'm sure it will tell me about all the problems that can be solved with quantum annealing, and uh, you've got plenty of customers and plenty of use cases. But what kind of problems cannot be solved with quantum annealing? So the what we're building with the quantum annealing technology is not a universal quantum computer. It's very much a special purpose uh, uh, technology that solves optimization problems. So I think a lot of uh, your listeners are probably familiar with an algorithm called Shor's algorithm, which is an algorithm um, that was developed and shown to be very effective at, at factoring large numbers. And so Shor's algorithm is an algorithm, is an example of, of an algorithm that cannot be run on our quantum annealing processors. You can run um, multiplication and inverse multiplication problems on a quantum annealing uh, processor, but you can't explicitly run an algorithm called Shor's algorithm. So, so in general, any of the the gate-based algorithms specifically that were were developed in terms of uh, like with a gate model system applying a series of gates to 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 solve a problem, those don't run directly on quantum annealing processors. If I'm a supply chain expert, a logistics expert, for instance, and so I have optimization problems, obviously. What does it take for me? What do I need to know to be able to express the problem in a way that would work on a quantum annealing machine? So there's different interfaces to our technology. And what we're finding is customers are most often accessing our technology through our hybrid solver service. So there you can pose a problem as a constraint satisfaction problem, um, which is sort of a, a common way to express these types of optimization problem. 
problems. Um, and then our software stack takes care of translating that into something that can be run on the quantum mailing processor. So you just need to pose a problem with some number of constraints and some, some interaction between variables and submit them to our hybrid solver service. And that will do the translation into something that can be run on the quantum mailing processor. There is sort of a more direct access point, which is that if you can formulate your problem as, as an icing spin problem, where you have pairwise interactions between variables, then you can express that directly as a machine instruction on the quantum mealing processor. Um, but there is uh, current quantum mealing processors have sort of fixed topologies. So there's, there's finite connectivity between each one of the physical qubits in the processor. And what we're finding is that when customers are coming to us, they're coming with problems that have much more connections that can re be represented natively on the processor. And so there is a, a translation step that is required. So, so I guess the, there's a short answer to your question, which is to, to use our hybrid solver service, but you can really dig in and, and, and pose those problems at the, at the basically the bare metal level if, if you want, but you need to know a little bit more about the topology of the chip and be a little bit more familiar with, what's, with the, the circuitry that's on the chip. When we look at gate-based vendors, and we'll talk about D-Wave gate-based announcement in a second, but when we look at gate-based vendors, sometimes they say, oh, now we have 127 qubits like IBM announced a um, short while ago, mm -hmm. and therefore you can run these type of applications. And when we have 400 qubits, you'll be able to do this. And when you have 10,000 qubits, you'll be able to do that. Is there sort of a back-of-the-envelope formula that says, the existing D-Wave uh, annealing computer can run something that would take X number of gates on a gate-based machine? I mean, probably the, the, the clearest way to compare is to, to use an optimization algorithm called QAOA. So this a quantum approximate optimization algorithm that was developed for this, this NISC era. So these, this near-term noisy um, quantum computing era um, the QAOA algorithm was, is really designed to solve optimization problems on, on a gate system. And so there you can basically pose problems to annealing quantum annealing solvers and pose those problems to gate-based solvers. Um, and so, I mean, we've been very eff uh, effectively solving problems that are, are uh, much larger than what can be posed to these, these, the, the current size of, of the, the, the gate-based computers. So there is uh, some way of, 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 at least for specifically the op optimization space, a way of comparing annealing and gate. But really what we're finding is that they're, they're complementary technologies in a lot of ways. Um, and that's one of the reasons why D-Wave is excited about our gate efforts. That uh, For optimization problems, it really makes much more sense from what we know now to solve those problems with a quantum annealing platform. But there's areas like quantum simulation and quantum chemistry where really uh, gate-based systems are, that's, that's where we think a lot of the early applications and attention will be on uh, for those, those systems. So, so there are ways to compare them, but they really are complementary technologies. So for QAOA, QAOA, what is the equivalent? So you can run a certain problem on today's quantum annealing machine. How many gates would I need roughly on a gate-based machine to run a problem of the same size? 
That's a great question. I mean, and it it really it does depend on sort of the the quality of your processor, so the so-called gate depth of your circuits, as well as the the individual qubit quality and and the coherence times of your qubit. So it really comes down to gate fidelity. So I can't give you a comparison, uh, a, like a one to one comparison, unless I have a little bit more information about sort of where the the, the gate model uh, systems are right now and what this hypothesized gate model system would 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 like what specs would need to be to compete with us um, on QAOA. Got it. Now, obviously, you've made an announcement that you're working on a gate-based computer, and sounds it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, some of your customers might come to you and say, well, we love your annealing machines, but we've got these set of problems that the annealing machines don't work for. Um, but is there are there benefits to you working in quantum annealing that would make you especially qualified to develop a really good gate-based machine? Yeah, I th- I, the answer is definitely yes. Um, we we are pursuing a superconducting-based gate model uh, approach. And so we've had um, a lot of experience in building up medium and large-scale superconducting processors and superconducting circuits. So in a very real way, what we have is a VLSI superconducting capability, very large-scale integration uh, capability. Our current advantage annealing processors have uh, a million Josephson junctions on them and, and uh, like very sophisticated wiring structures to actually run those, those, that, those processors. So that experience in building up large-scale superconducting um, control circuitry and superconducting circuitry carries over immediately to the, our gate effort. We will be building our, our devices in a superconducting stack. And so we have a lot of experience on how to fab, how to test, and how to actually um, develop this capability. We've also... Cal- calibration and characterization of these processors is is extremely important. So we need to uh, measure and characterize the the individual qubits and couplers on our annealing processors so that we can effectively pose problems to the processor. And those calibration steps we've had to sort of co-evolve how efficient our calibration and characterization is. Uh, over time as the process became more sophisticated. And this is something that will absolutely be a key part of the game model effort is not only building the circuits, but being able to run them and control them in a way that scales. And so our experience with uh, with our annealing development, we are carrying over to our gate, our gate development and both the, the manufacturing design and then really the running of these processors and the characterization of these processors. What's your best guess to when and how large would your gate-based machine be? That's something that is hard for me to answer. So we know it's going to be challenging. We have uh, sort of a roadmap for producing uh, gate circuitry, but we're not giving any dates out externally in terms of the roadmap for when customers can can run things on on our circuits. We realize, and we're not, um, we're, we're, we do realize this is a, this is a hard uh, technology to develop. Um, and so this is one of the reasons why we're, we're not um, uh, being public about any dates yet. What do you think, if anything, is holding quantum computing back these days? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, I think there's some fundamental scaling challenges that, uh, that the field, no matter how you're implementing quantum computing, needs to contend with. So 
Um, so we need to get to, you know, the many hundreds of thousands to millions of physical qubit scale to um, over, you know, the next five to 10 years in order to start running algorithms that really are practically useful. So, so that's the, the there is a, a, a scaling challenge. Um, <clears throat> I think for, for a lot of, uh, a lot of the development we've we've needed to uh, we know that we need error correction and we need to be able to build logical qubits that are much more long lived out of large ensembles of physical qubits um, and error correction overheads are large and so I think there's a big challenge in coming up with techniques for error correcting physical qubits that don't have as large an overhead and that's you know one way to help start attacking the scaling problem. So from, from my perspective, scaling these circuits or these implementations out to a size where they're really uh, competing with sort of the best supercomputers at solving, say, quantum chemistry problems um, and coming up with better ways and schemes and strategies for error correcting these physical qubits, those, I think, are the, the two big challenges in, in quantum computing. At least that my perspective is as a hardware person who is is doing building the technology. I do think if you ask someone on the algorithm side, they'll say there is a similar set of challenges, which is coming up with uh, connecting um, quantum computers to to applications. So this is something where we've done a lot of work internally at D-Wave, but I think there's still so much development to be done to come up with sort of software and, and algorithms that can run on, on uh, quantum computers. If you look at where, where you know, classical computing is, like the software is far outpacing the growth of hardware. And I think that there, that, that there will be a similar development over the next decade in, in quantum computing. The hardware side of your answer is, is a little bit idealistic. I mean, on one hand, it's encouraging, and the other hand, discouraging, because you're saying, well, if we had a million qubits and they're error-corrected, then you could do all these wonderful things. But wouldn't you think that if I have 10,000 qubits and they're not as noisy as today, but you know, I can at least measure and characterize and run hybrid algorithms, then there would be business value in running algorithms on quantum computers that cannot be done today on classical? Absolutely. No, I think there definitely is a near and a medium term uh, value in the circuits that we're building. Um, but again, this is where the second half of my answer comes in, which is that we need more people thinking about those algorithms and those applications. So, um, so that, that these these will be co-evolving as the hardware grows and gets better. But before we hit the kind of the say the million qubit mark, um, we expect that that these these uh, this technology will be very very useful. But there's got to be a, a co-evolution of of algorithms and software along with the hardware. If I may ask you a business question, um, I think that you guys are probably unique in the quantum annealing machines. And so when customers come to you, aren't they worried that it's just one supplier and there's no alternative? And if you guys, you know, stop being available, then all my algorithms are going to go to waste. I would say it's not the single source. No, so that the short answer is no. Um, I mean, I'm not as customer focused on the technology side, but from what I'm hearing from our, our professional um, services and sales team, we haven't heard that. But what we have heard is is customers that really want, um, as we move applications to production, they want some guarantee of uptime. So they want to make sure that this technology, if they pose a problem and submit a problem through our cloud service, that that the, there's a very very high reliability that that problem will be will be solved. And so. 
it's not as much the single source of quantum annealing so far, although that could be a concern sort of as we as we develop more applications and more people start depending on the technology. But it really like the feedback we're getting and, and is is your your services is, is valuable. We want to know that how is it going to be guaranteed to be up? Is it in some ways, can we treat it like Amazon Web Services where, you know, you, you, we really are relying more and more on cloud resources to, to run large parts of our, our business. So, um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Like not the, I think people are a lot more focused on sort of uptime and the fact that we have solvers in production right now um, and, and sort of have some guarantees in, from that perspective and less so from, oh, if D-Wave D is the only supplier right now and that's a concern. That could change for sure. So, but to, to my knowledge, that that hasn't been part of the discussions I've had with customers. How long does it take to get an answer? I mean, I know it depends on the complexity of the circuit, but if I submit the circuit and the system is up and it's correctly coded, how long before I can get the response? So, so that's a that's also a hard question to answer because again, it depends on sort of at what level of the the software stack and the interface you're you're accessing the technology. If you want to make a, a single icing call to our our our, our quantum kneeling processor, so you're you're calling directly uh, an optimization problem and asking to be solved on the processor. With all of the, and again, it really depends on kind of network latencies. But if you're anywhere in the world, you have access to our cloud service. Um, it's going to be on the order of several hundred milliseconds, uh, and maybe up to just under a second. So again, and it, it really depends on a bunch of things like you know how heavy is the usage of the the chip? Are there a lot of people that are actually submitting problems to the chip? And how good is your internet um, from say the location where you're submitting the problem? The sort of rough sort of order of magnitude estimates, like a few hundred milliseconds. Is there a notion of cycle time in terms of how many iterations you run in a second? Yeah, I mean, we definitely pay attention to like the number of problems we solve per second. And again, I mean, our our there usually the the way the workflow works is that our there, there will be multiple processes that are calling the chip in and asking for answers back. So there'll be four or five, many dozens of users that are submitting problems. Even a single user, um, they could be solving or submitting like a series of problems. And typically, um, the what we recommend is if you're running a lot of problems that you you batch them or you can call the chip asynchronously. So in some cases, this isn't possible. But if there's a way where you can kind of batch call all of your your problems to the chip, then there's some threading and some advantages that we can we can take if we get sort of a hundred requests to use the chip all at once. That's a lot more efficient than if you're coding and running in a for loop on your computer and calling those hundred problems one at a time. And sometimes you definitely need feedback from the the, the processor and from the previous call of the the to the chip to decide what you're going to do next. But not always. And in those cases where you don't, it's better to asynchronously send all of those jobs to the processor. As we get close to the end of our discussion, I'm just curious how many of these computers are out there? If you can tell me. Uh, I cannot right now. I, I, I mean, there's so the so we have a, an 
uh, uh, our legacy 2000Q lower noise solver. Um, and then we have uh, one, at least one other solver that's by our current advantage solver that's in the cloud. Um, I don't know that I can talk too much about the other systems that are that are online. So, but I think, so there's there's two primary systems that users can use right now, which is our, our legacy 2000Q qubit technology and then our newer 5000 qubit advantage technology. Um, I think that if you if you want to dig into this more, I would have to check in with our, our sales team and, and figure out what 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 I'm allowed to say about the other solvers. So. Sure, um, I, I understand. Um, does a computer require a lot of maintenance? Or I mean, I I'm, I'm sure that from the API perspective, I just submit a job and and get a response. But behind the scenes, are there uh, tons of people who are fine-tuning the qubits or cleaning or cooling or doing anything like that? No, no, no fine-tuning really. I mean, the, so I spoke about our calibration procedure, which is a procedure from when we get the, the chip and we put it in a refrigerator to when customers can solve problems. So there's a, a procedure that gets us to that point. Once we're at that point, um, there's very little tweaking or hand tuning that we're doing. So there's suites of diagnostic tests, of course, that are running in the background, giving us you know health checks and consistency checks on on the chip. Um, and then the chip is actually housed in a cryogenic enclosure, so it's kept at, at cryogenic temperatures. And so there is some fairly regular maintenance we need to do on the refrigerator just to make sure that all the cooling systems are are healthy and, and operational. Um, but Think we're evolving to the point where a lot of that is just automated so the system will tell us when something is going wrong so but for the most part um the the, the automated procedures are are checking making sure that it's healthy and and we don't have you know someone sitting by the computer turning a dial in, in any way that's just not sustainable or scalable so i really appreciate you answering this uh, spectrum of questions for me how can people get in touch with you to learn more about your work uh, there's two different ways. Um, so definitely you can access uh, and get in touch with us through our, our main company website. Um, but I'm also happy to take questions um, at my email address. So my email is tlanting, T-L-A-N-T-I-N-G, at dwavesys.com. Um, and I'm happy. I'm more than happy to answer technical questions or questions about D-Wave, um, any, anything. It's, it's, uh, it's fun to talk to people about quantum computing. That's excellent. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Yvonne. It was a great chat.